Halloween is over. Well, I'll be a... Excuse me, I had to vent. Alright, so Halloween is over. But if you had driven around Ray County the first week of November, you wouldn't have known it. In Wood Heights and part of Richmond, for example, there were still yards decorated with skeletons, jack-o'-lanterns, ghosts, and even a dragon or two for a few days after the October 31st holiday. And even if you've packed away your decorations for another year, I'll bet most of you are still munching on leftover Halloween candy. Aren't you? Hmm? In a related note, for those of you who are worried your candy corn will go bad, don't. There are so many preservatives in candy corn, it'll still be edible long after flooding from melting polar ice caps and a barrage of asteroids have turned the Earth into a planetary pile of goo. Gives you a little bit of hope, doesn't it? So, with all that in mind, we're making this a Halloween hangover episode of Ray County Voices, or Halloween leftover episode of Ray County Voices, if you prefer that. We start by sharing some of your thoughts about Halloween. The Richmond News, which co-produces Ray County Voices, staged a series of polls during October 2021. Safratera Altus posted autumn and Halloween-related questions on our official Facebook page. Here are some of the questions and answers. Question. What is your favorite Halloween candy? Answer. Well, the answers varied. Two folks said candy corn. Two others said Reese's. Some other responses were Smarties and my favorite, quote, anything I can take before the kids know and start crying, end quote. Question. What is your favorite Tim Burton movie? Burton, of course, is known for exploring the macabre in his films, which are also humorous. Answer. One vote for Batman Returns. One vote for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Question. What is your favorite Halloween song? We had one person vote for two songs, Haunted House by Jumpin' Gene Simmons, not to be confused with Gene Simmons, the bass player of the hard rock band KISS, and Bobby Pickett's The Monster Mash. Our other responder wrote, Most Things by Danny Elfman. Question. You have to get rid of one Halloween candy. Which one are you choosing? The choices were Reese's, Twix, Snickers, and M&M's. Answer, Twix was the runaway winner, or loser, depending on how you look at it, with seven votes. M&M's was the runner-up with three votes. And a few folks gave answers that weren't on the menu. One person wrote, the apple. And one person posed the rhetorical question, why? Why indeed? Question. What is your favorite horror novel? Answer. One vote for Misery by Stephen King. One vote for The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson. Question. Who is your favorite character from The Addams Family? Starting out as panel cartoons drawn by Charles Adams, The Addams Family has become a TV and movie franchise. 
Answer, Cousin It got two votes, Morticia Adams, Gomez Adams, and Wednesday Adams each got one vote. Thank you to everyone who participated. Who knows? Maybe the Richmond News will pull its readers again next October. If we do, don't forget to vote. Unless you're scared. <laughs>
performing what he sees as a form of poetic justice. I could go into further detail, but I want to avoid spoilers for those who haven't seen it. After all, part of the fun is following the plot twists, especially in the third act. A word of warning. This is not for the squeamish. Seven is packed with grim, sometimes gory visuals. It's also packed with mesmerizing sonic and visual textures, which do a brilliant job of setting the mood. And it's packed with some excellent acting. Morgan Freeman is phenomenal as the world-weary Detective William Somerset, Arlie Ermey, best known as Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, masterfully walks the line between crusty and compassionate as Somerset's captain. And of course, there's the killer, John Doe, played by... Ah, 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 ah. I'm not going to tell you. No spoilers here. Number 7. Freaks, 1932. Like Seven, this Todd Browning-directed classic has its share of disturbing visuals. And like Seven, it has its share of amazing visuals and is an exercise in magnificent storytelling. Set in a traveling circus, Freaks is the type of story Edgar Allan Poe would have told had he lived in the 20th century and worked in motion pictures. Based on what I remember of Poe from my high school English classes, its plot is the sort of revenge story he would have loved. A company diva mistreats the so-called freaks in the circus and they retaliate. I won't say how. I promise no spoilers after all. Number six, Eraserhead, 1977. Hmm, how to describe this early feature by David Lynch? Lynch is best known perhaps for his excellent and often confusing TV series, Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. Well, as my late friend, Richmond High School classmate and fellow movie buff Mark Moyer would probably say, it's out there. It might even be so far out there that it's spoiler-proof. Like Lynch's TV work, it's got enough surreal images to make you say, what the, for days, even weeks after you see it. It's also got enough grotesque, disturbing images to justify being classified by The Guardian and others as a horror film. Did I mention it's out there? Way out there. Number 5, The Exorcist, 1973. It was this past summer when I finally got to see this classic tale of the exorcism of Regan O'Neill, a demon-possessed girl. It was well worth the wait, though. However, I confess, it starts slowly. But once it gets going, it's gripping. The makeup used to show the possession of Regan by the demon spirit Pazuzu is impressive and Mercedes McCambridge oozes pure evil as the voice of Pazuzu. I'm not sure I can do it justice, but it kind of sounds like this. It's low, 
and it's a little bit gravelly, and it'll make your skin crawl. See, I told you there was a way cool voice I was going to try to do later, and this one's easier on my throat than Beetlejuice, so there you go. Anyway, back to the discussion of the film. The special effects, ranging from Regan slash Pazuzu's levitation above her bed to the furniture moving across Regan's bedroom, is excellent, particularly for 1973, roughly two decades before CGI became commonplace in mainstream American movies. But as a comment to an Entertainment Weekly story on the film suggests, there's more to The Exorcist than technical proficiency. As the Entertainment Weekly piece itself suggests, it uses that grade-A level craftsmanship to wrestle with the issue of the relevance of religion slash spirituality in modern America, a credit to screenwriter William Peter Blatty, an observant Catholic until his death in 2017. Speaking of faith, that leads into my next two films. Number four, The Night of the Hunter, 1955. There are some who might question if this is a horror film, but when you look at it, it falls under what's called psychological horror. In this case, the horror comes from the relentless pursuit of two youngsters by their deranged, money-hungry stepfather through a grim, American Gothic, Depression-era landscape. Their stepfather is Harry Powell, a killer and self-proclaimed preacher. As played by Robert Mitchum, Harry is charismatic and commanding, able to convince people that he's doing God's work. Most importantly to himself, perhaps, he's able to convince himself that the crimes he commits are justified because he thinks he's doing God's work. But the film shows there's a difference between a person who professes faith and a person who lives it. Harry professes it. Lillian Gish, the stern yet loving elderly widow who takes in Harry's stepchildren as they flee from him, lives it. It's the contrast between the two that helps to make the final act compelling. The next film touches on faith in another way. It's one of three films tied for first on my list, my holy trinity, or maybe unholy trinity, you could say. It's the 1976 version of Carrie, directed by Brian De Palma, adapted from Stephen King's novel. For me, Carrie is what they call remote drop television. If I see it's playing on my satellite dish, I'll stop channel surfing and let it play in the background while I work at home. Well, at least until the final 25 or 30 minutes. Then, I often don't move. I'm mesmerized as I watch telekinetic teen Carrie White's dreamy prom date turn nightmarish, followed by her confrontation with Margaret White, her overprotective religious zealot of a mother. Roger Ebert, God rest his soul, was right to call this film, quote, absolutely spellbinding, end quote, when he reviewed it in 76. There are many reasons to be transfixed by Carrie, not just by the final 25 to 30 minutes, but also by the hour or so leading up to them. There's Paul Hirsch's masterful mix of rhythms and editing shots. There's the breathtaking display of colors and visual textures, a credit in part to De Palma and Jack Fisk, his art director. There are the special effects, used sparingly yet expertly. And there are the captivating performances, particularly by Sissy Spacek as the title character, and by Piper Laurie, whose subtleties in line readings, body language, facial expressions, give Margaret White depth. 
Listen to the way she pleads with Carrie not to go to the prom, or when she explains how Carrie was conceived, and you'll understand what I mean. And I can't forget Pino Dinaggio's musical score, which includes an obvious tribute to the next film. Psycho, 1960. This Alfred Hitchcock-directed classic is probably best known for a certain stabbing, shall we say, in a motel bathroom, accompanied by screeching violins, scored by Bernard Herrmann. Well, the rest of this film is memorable, too. The rest of Herrmann's score is a masterpiece that heightens the film's tone, a mix of anxiety, melancholy, and outright gloom. The story of an embezzler's encounter with the disturbed, reclusive motel manager and the um, aftermath of that encounter has the economy of storytelling and plot twists one expects dare I say, welcomes in a Hitchcock film. Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins are perfectly cast. Leigh is Marion Crane, the embezzler. Perkins is Norman Bates, the reclusive motel owner who might not be the shy, charming young man he appears to be at first. Some of the actors who provide the voice for Norman's mother, who isn't all she appears to be either. What do I mean by that? Not going to tell you. Remember, no spoilers. The casting is perfect top to bottom in the other film that's tied for the top spot, 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. Jodie Foster burns with intelligence in her portrayal of Clarice Starling, the FBI agent in training who gets recruited to help catch the serial killer Jamie Gum, better known as Buffalo Bill. So does Sir Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, the imprisoned serial killer the FBI consults to try to capture Buffalo Bill. The other actors find the right notes to play for their respective characters, too, ranging from Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford, Clarice's mentor, to Diane Baker as U.S. Senator Ruth Martin, mother of kidnapped victim Catherine Martin. The Silence of the Lambs is one of two films on my list to feature a score by Howard Shore. Seven is the other one. As Roger Ebert noted when he examined Silence of the Lambs for his series of great movie essays, Shore's score for Silence enhances the movie's sense of gravitas. In contrast to the heaviness of the music, Ted Talley's screenplay adaptation of Thomas Harris's excellent novel bristles with wit and touches of sly, gallows humor. And like the other films on this list, it provides a cinematic reminder of how disturbing, or scary if you will, we humans can be. And that concludes our Halloween Hangover episode. Thanks to the Richmond News readers who answered our Facebook polls. Thanks to Tara Altus for posting the questions for that poll. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Look for another episode to go live near the end of this month as Ray County Voices looks back at two November holidays, Veterans Day and Thanksgiving. Until then, enjoy your leftover candy corn. If you dare.
Gray County Voices is produced by the Richmond News in association with Momut Multimedia and Momut Music, imprints of Mutt Media LLC. The executive producers are Brian Rice, Sharon Donnett, and Sean Roney. Sharon is our contact, by the way, if you want to be a sponsoring business or supporting patron of this series. To reach her, email her at Sharon at leaderpress.com or call her at 816-776-5454. Her contact information also is included in the episode description on the various podcast platforms where you can find Ray County Voices. Those include Buzzsprout.com, our content host. Thank you, Buzzsprout, for hosting our content. This episode was scripted, directed, edited, and engineered by Sean Roney. Music for this episode was composed by Sean Roney and performed by a solo incarnation of the music collective Sacred and Secular. The copyright for this episode is owned by the Richmond News, Momut Music, and Momut Multimedia. Any use of this podcast without the expressed written consent of the Richmond News, Momut Music, and Momut Multimedia is prohibited.